Hi, you're listening to Acquisition Talk with Eric Lofgren. I am not Eric Lofgren, though. We're mixing it up this episode with a new guest host takeover. That's me. My name is Mike Benitez, and I run the Merge newsletter, and I try to make sense of defense by dishing out equal amounts of intel, insights, humor, and snark. Check it out, uh, www.themerge.co. I am joined this week by Matt McGregor, the Prince of Bureaucracy Disruption, and a regular on this podcast, as you know. And then rounding out our trifecta is the man who owns the place, the king of acquisition insurgency, Eric Lofgren. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Awesome to to be on my own podcast, man. (laughs) (laughs) Matt seems particularly excited to be here, so that's great. Uh, All right, so uh, today we're going to talk about Light Attack, the bridge tanker program, some commercial tech topics, and of course... Uh, what would an Air Force-themed episode be without bringing up the never-ending drama that is the Air Force's fighter force structure? Uh, are you guys ready? Bring it on. All Dude, right. I'm excited. Matt, I need you to get more excited. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's talk about Light Attack. Uh, so Light Attack, you guys probably have been tracking this, uh, about the past 13 years has consisted of a number of efforts. We've had Imminent Fury, Combat Dragon 2, and then the Air Force's uh, blah named uh, Light Attack Experiment. Uh, So these have uh, resulted collectively in nothing having ever been delivered to the warfighter. Uh, I actually posted a graphic of this uh, earlier this week uh, that came out with the newsletter, and it uh, it got some pretty interesting remarks and shares on Twitter. So you could, uh, it was uh, was interesting. People like pictures, apparently. Now, the infographics have been sweet, so keep them coming. (laughs) Uh, awesome. Yeah, I was, uh, I was like, oh, I guess people do like pictures after all, so it's just me. Uh, so yeah, to, uh, so where we're at right now is uh, the Air Force decided not to buy, uh, proceed with the program, but they had money that Congress had gave them, about $200 million, and they bought four light attack airplanes, two AT-26s and two A-29s. Uh, those are both turboprops if you guys uh, aren't tracking. Uh, right now, why it's important now in the news, because this happened a couple of years ago, those airplanes are being delivered now. And so the question is, what is the Air Force gonna do with them? So I will leave it, start there for you guys to discuss and go. Well, I'll just start with obviously what you wrote about, right? Which is a good question, right? And I think one of the things that, you know, there's always this kind of debate and we always like, you know, I think anchor too much on like what happened recently that was big, but like you could take the World War One or the World War Two scenario, right? Where one is like immediate mobilization tomorrow in force. And then World War Two was more like, well, there's a lot of kind of proxy stuff going on, especially for America. And it, it took a little while to ramp up. And like, will we have that proxy period in this next great power competition? Maybe or maybe not, but it would seem that you might want to hedge uh, some of your bets, right? And have something that would be you know, cheap and robust for a proxy fight. So um, you gave some good examples there, but, you know, I think you, your own idea was kind of um, formed my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be uh, influenced anyway. Matt, did you, uh, did you kind of come up with any takeaways that were different than that? No, I mean, it, well, I, so I was actually in the building on during the last round of this and it was, it was really confusing with regards to, uh, one day it seemed like everybody was on board. We were pressing forward. We were like, this was going to happen or, you know, getting the pilot training going. And then the next day it would, it would, uh, 
you would just die. I mean, it, it was, it was really bizarre. I, I, I knew as much as anything in the building, even though I was sitting in some of these meetings and it, it or um, as much as the media as, from sitting on the side, sitting in the building. So yeah, it was, it was really bizarre. And I think it comes down to budget. I think it makes a lot of sense, right. To, to probably have this kind of capability. I personally would have gone with like something like the Scorpion, which <clears throat> can get you on target a lot faster and the turboprops. I think a lot of people were saying, you know, it's not not exactly the most responsive, but yeah, having something that's a low cost uh, platform, because we really we really are going to quickly get ourselves with based on this new plan that we're going to talk about, where we have F-35s and NGAD, and you know, if there's some kind of situation that unfolds in the, you know, in a more low, uh, you know, low uh, a threat environment, we're really not going to have a force that is uh, commensurate with it. We're going to have to put our, you know, our best equipment towards a fight that probably could do with a lot less. So I think it makes sense, but I think it'll never happen just because of the budget piece, standing up all the infrastructure to support this and the depots and the training pipelines. Now, one idea, the last thing I'll throw out is if we did this smart and, uh, you know, we have all the, the drones that have been operated by officers, if we move that to the enlisted force and started training enlisted pilots for uh, for this lower end mission, um, as well as some of the drone missions, I think that would, I think that could be a game changer in, in terms of the pilot pipeline, because that's, that continues to be a challenge for the Air Force. And that might create some enough relief to maybe buy as a little bit of budget. But anyway, it's probably never going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of layers to the uh, the drama that you know. It's 13 years of stories of failures and dead ends, uh, yeah, including the last one. Uh, so one of the things that I, I I wrote about it before, and I didn't really uh, touch too much on it directly uh, when I wrote this uh, this edition uh, for the newsletter, was that you know you talk about deterrence versus competition uh, and competing via proxies that Eric had talked about, but it's also about uh, in, the, in the Air Force in particular, we talk about uh, tactical and operational problems as you know mo the most dangerous course of action and the most likely course of action. And it's funny because you know, we're building uh, the narrative right now about everything with China, Russia, all that's important, but you're really building a force for the most dangerous course of action. And you know that is all based off of an adversary's capability. Uh, so what, what does the glossy brochure say? Well, they have a hypersonic. Or they have a FOBS, or you know they have uh, multi-role fifth-gen uh, stealth fighters. So you're building things for the most dangerous course of action, which in the end is a is a, is a deterrence uh, strategy. But in but what really happens is the most likely course of action is the will. So it's not capabilities; it's will, and you can see that playing out through all of the competitive proxies uh, geographically, anyways, um, in South America, and you can see it in uh, Africa. You have economic uh, comp competitive proxies uh, that play out through currency manipulation and things like that. And so these most likely courses of action are all about the will and where and we have a pretty good idea of what China's will is. They wanna be a, a basically a global military superpower by 2049. That is the plan and they're building to that plan. So it's interesting to see how they're, they're building um, global influence through these other proxies. And it's you know going all the way back to light attack. I think it's, it is a piece of a big, big, big puzzle that we really, really, really have to get our arms around. And I don't think that anyone's had a really serious conversation about uh, security cooperation. And that's kind of the angle I took uh, that, that opinion piece was, 
you know, the continued light attack experiment, which is what we're doing with these aircraft, uh, it really has to do with building um, some partnerships with allies in those competitive proxies. And then the tech that goes with that isn't the airplane, it's a data link. Uh, this is called Aeronet. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a low cost commercially based data link that they built, the Air Force built probably four years ago now, specifically for security cooperation. They haven't deployed it anywhere uh, based on some other hangups and some experimentation that needs to happen. And so what it looks like they're going to do is use these four aircraft to finish the uh, testing and experimentation with that data link network. And then obviously the next question is, well, now what? What do you do with it? Who do you give it to? What platforms do you deploy it on? It's air and ground platforms. Uh, so it's got a little multi-domain uh, stink on it. So it'll be curious to see uh, how that plays out. You guys have any uh, experience with uh, security cooperation initiatives or anything like that? I have a very limited, uh, just enough to be dangerous. Uh, I learned most of what I learned. Uh, I, I know on uh, F-35, but you know, it, it is always tricky because it's one of those things where um, it always seems like direct commercial sales is a lot easier than trying to stand up some kind of uh, FMS partnership kind of thing where, you know, they're, you're going to, you're going to invest some and they're going to invest some, you're going to do some kind of joint capability, which would make the most sense so that you're kind of working together, but invariably the way the FMS rolls and all the restrictions and just the kind of uh, the craziness of that process just seems like it's always sub-optimized and you wind up, you know, trying to, trying to fit the round, you know, round peg in a square hole and or square peg in a round hole. And then, you know, uh, you eventually get them something, but it's, it's not always the best. And, and then there's all like the offsets that always like come because countries that pick your platform usually want to make sure they have some of the manufacturing in their country and they have special training and different things. So it's always more complex than it seems like it should be like, it seems it should be like, Hey, we have this great aircraft. It's cheap. And we'll put our data link on it and you should buy it. And that's it. But always seems like it becomes a lot more than that. Yeah. That's a great point. All right, let's go shift gears and we're going to talk from uh, from propeller little light attack aircraft to uh, big aircraft that carry fuel. Let's talk about the bridge tanker program. So the, uh, the Air Force is calling this the KCY competition, and it's trying to buy 160 commercial derivative tankers that will bridge uh, between the KC-46, which used to be known as the KCX, and the KCZ, which is some future made up clean sheet design that uh, doesn't exist. So... Uh, this is uh, another graphic I had posted, which was <laughs> um, how not to buy a tanker. And uh, it, this goes through the 21-year ordeal to buy the what is now the KC-46. Uh, again, I think pictures, people like pictures. So I'll, I will, uh, Eric, I'll keep doing that. Um, like, like I have to say, the last part of it where the plane is going down in a nose <laughs> is the best part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying it's a total failure. I'm just saying it's definitely like, uh, you know, it, def it definitely is not a fun glide slope yet. It's it's got a, you know, it's got a ways to go. I think we've uh, we've we've got about half of the planned tankers that we're supposed to have at this point, and it's five billion dollars over budget. Uh, and some of that's the Air Force's fault because they didn't conduct proper test oversight on the boom redesign, and so uh, they, they took a hundred million dollar hit. But that's nothing to uh, Boeing's $5 billion hit because it was a fixed price uh, contract. So, uh, Eric, I'm going to hand the pins over to you to talk about the, uh, the contract side of this uh, 
how this has played out because that seems like it's your uh, bailiwick. <laughs> uh, sure, I um, wasn't exactly involved with that one, but I think one of the the things that we well, saw. Not, the... No, you're not involved in, in the table. Yeah, I, I, as far as the contract types, you explain that. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, I guess one of the the things here was right back in the better buying power era. There was a whole bunch of talk about hey, we need to go fix price incentive on big art, like R&D development programs, right? And so there was this push towards fixed price. And of course, Boeing came in and we're not going to talk about the legacy of the drama um, and all the, the kinds of protests and how like the original one was scrapped. But, you know, when they, when they awarded it to Boeing, it looks like, you know, the Boeing just bought in on it, right? And then they expected that they would be able to make that up in, in production and sustainment. Now, it's not even clear if they bought in on it, in my view, um, to, to get that um, big award, because ultimately, uh, there wasn't very much, there was like four key technologies that they were going to put on an existing airframe that they already had, right? And, you know, they, they somehow managed to screw that up a little bit. And I was actually looking at, you know, like the Airbus uh, version here, which has already gone automatic. And they said here, um, the AR, the A3R has met every milestone, including several aeronautic world first, such as automated contacts. So it's like Airbus yeah. was able to do this. Um, it seems like it was just, um, I'm not, I'm not really sure what went wrong there. Right. But ultimately Boeing was looking forward to like 41 billion, I believe was the, the procurement package there on the, on the development and the production. So there's going to be a big back end kind of pot of money. And then of course, sustainment is the real like 70% of the total acquisition costs. So if they were able to get that through $5 billion loss now is worth it for the future. But if this program gets like severely cut then, and they don't have uh, all those orders and they move more quickly to that LMTX or whatever the version is called, then that will be an interesting uh, play out here. But you know, one of one of my general views here, or I, it seems like some people call the KCT forty six an acquisition success because the government was not on the bill for the cost overruns of five billion dollars. But that doesn't, to me, is like what was the value of that thing derived? Right? Did they get good? Like, was that an acquisition success just because they held Boeing to the letter of the contract? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> No, that's a good over. point. And it's, you know, the first, the first tanker showed up three years late and it still has problems. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's a, it's limited operational utility right now and it still has to go through a complete boom redesign. Um, so it, it does have a way to go. And, and it's interesting if you, uh, if you go back and look at the KC-767, which is kind of what it's based off of, it's a 767 uh, variant. Um, you know, th those have been in service with other militaries for over a decade already um so like japan has them uh the difference from what i understand is air the faa airworthiness certification is what drove a lot of these issues uh which was not um there was something in the contract from what i understand so it'll be really curious if we pivot into the kcy bridge tanker now we have a kc46 who has this faa certification and we have a an airbus variant uh, from lockheed that may or may not actually have one or it needs to pay uh, to, to get one. And so that might actually drive 
um, engineering exploration and these other things that start coming up, which then leads into cost overrun and time delays. So it'll be really interesting uh, to, to see how this plays out. The uh, fun fact, uh, the, the KC-46, um, you know, there's, there's two other tankers in the Air Force. There's the, the KC-135, this is the smaller one, the older one from the 50s, um, and then the KC-10 uh, extender. And so the, the KC-135 was built, was designed and built to refuel the first jet bombers. That's why it's the, uh, the Strata tanker. And then the B, uh, B-47 was the Strata jet. And then you have the Strata Fortress, which is the B-52. So those are all kind of designed as a family of systems back then. But uh, fun fact, the KC-46 is the size. So it takes up the ramp space of a KC-10, but it carries the fuel of the smaller KC-135. So uh, that's where we're at right now. When you get into fuel, this is where this competition, I think, is really going to be interesting. And so the, the, the Airbus variant, the MRTT, uh, it carried about 30,000 pounds more than the KC-46. And Lockheed has uh, teamed up with them, and now they've basically added more fuel. And so now it has about 60,000 pounds more fuel than the KC-46. So it's going to be really interesting when we look at uh, the Pacific, and it's not just number of tankers, but it's the amount of fuel that's airborne is kind of what matters. Uh, it'll be really curious to see how this plays out in the next uh, two or three years. Cost per desired effect, right, uh, is the the Mitchell way of, I think, putting what you're trying to say there, which is you get more, you're getting more capacity, right, for basically the same kind of, you know, plan form, Um like what was that driving in your efficiencies? And you, you actually had some really interesting things there about, uh, you know, how they actually were like the LPTA kind of decision style there led to some kind of like neglect. They knew that like the, the KC-46 wasn't going to have the same fuel capacity and other, you know, metrics. So it was interesting that they still went with it. Yeah, it was, uh, it, I, I forgot what the, the split was, but I think it was 1% uh, when I was doing the research for this. If the winning bid was greater than 1% cheaper than the, than the other one, they wouldn't look at the second tranche of metrics. And of the 92 other metrics that were ignored because the, the, the contract was underbid, one of those was fuel, which is kind of would be like, you know, the first tranche of attributes I would want in the tanker, but you know, uh, and they have viewed that as positive though, because of the fact that, uh, the fact that it was maybe smaller and had less, you know, having less capacity, maybe it was viewed as less complexity. So maybe, maybe it was also viewed as one of those, um, like, Oh, maybe it makes sense that they're at this price point. Whereas the other vendor, maybe, um, cause one of the things in source selection that I think is like completely underutilized or maybe I don't want to say underutilized, but underappreciated in, in, in strategy planning is uh, most probable cause. So when you do a source selection, you can actually, at the end of it, look at all of the, the risks and all of the um, you know development approaches, you know reuse of existing technologies, and and then compare that to you know basically the, of the baseline of what you would expect this to cost, and you can you can sort of say. Oh, you know what? They're not accounting for this. They're not accounting for that. They're accounting for you know having to mature this, and you can actually add those costs to develop a most probable cost. It would be interesting to see if something like that was done to say, oh, maybe because maybe they actually came out with 
the Airbus one being higher based on some of the things they were they were going to do. But <clears throat> anyway, one one thing I did take away from I did, I read the IG report before this, and they did a really good job of kind of showing some of the key things that went wrong. And I, I think it goes to the point that we've talked about before on, on, on this podcast about you know the government needing to be involved. Um, you know, there's very very few successes from the TISPR days where we just handed things off and the government just sat back and just, you know, magically something was produced. Like it really, you know, having the government involved, you know, being that honest broker to make sure that the contractor is looking at all the things they're not taking shortcuts uh, is just, I think, I don't think we kind of talk about it enough, but some of the things they said in the IG report, just a couple of quick, quick hits is, um, so the boom, right? Like you just, you just mentioned there, Mike, the boom was the biggest, uh, the biggest issue. And some of the things that they did not do, uh, bottom line is they didn't manage the program very well, but they actually didn't, uh, didn't ensure that the, or uh, didn't actually label the boom as a critical technology. E- even though uh, Boeing actually wound up developing a completely new design uh, for it, um, which was different from the original design that had been, been posed, they didn't go back and say, oh, we need to do a technology readiness assessment on that to make sure it's at the level. They actually just sort of, you know, kind of in a TISPR kind of approach, right? You just kind of say, okay, yep, contractor's handling that. Uh, we don't have to worry about it. And they found it, you know, found problems really late. Um, yeah, they never, they didn't revalidate the information uh, when uh, Boeing came up with the, the new bunch of technologies that were new and novel. Yeah, so anyway, there's, there's a couple, I think, really good takeaways. And the other one was the... Uh, uh, the system. So when the when the when the boom operator is in, is in the in the back of the plane, you know, doing the doing the refueling operation, they're the way that the KC forty KC forty six is set up is they're actually sitting upright, almost like a, an office chair, and so they're relying on a lot of technology. They're looking at this screen and they're relying on a lot of technology to show them all the various angles with the way that they're when they're doing it. Um, so it's not like the old days where they're just looking out the window. And that thing kept having, that system kept having these weird things where angles were missed and it would basically cause, um, cause the operator, you know, to kind of, you know, not be able to see straight because they like kind of parallax effects. And so literally Dr. Roper, just to show you how bad this got, Dr. Roper was literally like in his office solving this problem with phys- physicists trying to figure out <laughs> how to solve this problem. Like that's the, that's the state that this program got to. So Anyway, my two cents on the whole thing, but. Nice. All right, let's, uh, we're gonna switch gears and start talking about uh, airplanes and buying airplanes. And we're gonna talk about um, something that's a little more near and dear to my heart right now, just based on my my current job. Uh, So uh, as capable as the military uh, purports it to be, it can no longer provide the air land geography nor the target threat electromagnetic fidelity and density. All of that is required to recreate a realistic and operationally relevant environment to test and train. And so that is no longer possible. And here's why. So we uh, are now in the era of the so-called geoint singularity. And so that's when real-time high-fidelity Earth observations with analytics are available globally to everyone, uh, including uh, Matt. (laughs) With a credit card, you can log in and you can get data as a service from a ton of different types of constellations from 
uh, SAR imagery to EOIR to multispectral to SIGINT, all commercially available. And so the point is, uh, this is not the 50s where you just go out in the desert north of uh, Las Vegas and build a secret airstrip and no one's going to notice. Uh, and the problem is when we go out and we do things and people see, uh, it's kind of like the, uh, the Patriots. Uh, <laughs> if you had a playbook and you played against the Patriots for about six or seven years, uh, you're going to give away uh, plays out of your playbook and they're going to they're gonna one up you. And so when we were able to do this in a, in a secure environment, we can preserve some of our uh, some of our better plays to, you know, to score the game winning touchdowns. So the problem is it's a modern problem and requires a modern solution. But all the signs that we're all looking at here now point to something that's different. So we can't build a new airstrip in the desert. We can't go do something like that. Um, and our uh, our windows of opportunity to go do things uh, live fly are getting smaller and smaller. Uh, so we need to not put it, do it in the real world, but do that stuff in a synthetic environment. And so that's like uh, the, the artist formerly known as Facebook, which is now Meta. You know, they're they're putting billions of dollars in building this metaverse, and it's basically what I uh, wrote about is we need to be doing this for the military. You know, hashtag mill metaverse. Uh, so high-end forces require a high-end test and training to be prepared against high-end opponents, but the only place to do this in a synthetic environment, which does not exist. And that, uh, that was something I wrote about a month ago, and I got some really interesting um, feedback, um, yeah, all, all positive and reinforcing uh, that we need someone to be in charge of this problem. And until we have uh, someone in charge of the problem, we're just going to keep admiring it. Yeah, that was a that was an interesting one. You know, it kind of came out of left field um, for me, but I definitely see what you're talking about here. Y you know, one of these things is will will this metaverse world actually like mirror the real world in sufficient detail to actually inform the tactics and you know procedures that would actually be used? Um, yeah, I think it could, um, especially for a lot of this this uh, you know basic type of conventional warfare. I don't think there's any other way to go. I mean, <laughs> we, there's a, the word high end is used a lot here, but you know, the, the fight that we will have against near peers, I'm just, you know, anybody who's studied this kind of says is it's going to be high velocity, highly intense, and probably a short duration because, you know, everyone's going to be throwing everything they have at the, at the, at the fight. Nobody wants to keep it prolonged, you know, and it's not the way that China typically operates either. So so if there's if there's a Taiwan situation, you know, it's going to be a joint force thing, you know, commanders in that in, in that uh, theater basically saying, hey, Army, what do you got? Air Force, what do you got? We got, you know, move, move, move. Um, and I think the only way you're going to really, really be able to test in that that kind of uh, high velocity situation is in a synthetic environment using and the other piece of it, right? And Mike, Mike, you know this is, you know, using all of the tools at your disposal, not just the ones that you you do in public. You know, so all the classified stuff that you don't, you, you won't be, you won't be admitting, you know, in the uh, open air, you know, you can actually play with that in this synthetic environment to see what effects uh, you can achieve, uh, you know, and again, see some of the, some of these scenarios that we know we might face. So, yeah, I don't think there's any, any um, option for us, especially given that our combat training ranges are in horrible condition and not even close to being modernized. So, so yeah, I say we throw all of our money at this too. Let's bring the, 
Bring the metaverse to DoD. I love how you said throw all of our money at it. Um, it looks like you know digital <laughs> all engineering. All of our money, but <laughs> well, but but people are pushing for digital engineering, and I think you were saying in there that the digital twinning and a lot of that stuff um, to bring it into the synthetic environment in like a realistic way. You know, I yeah, I did a yeah. podcast with uh, Tom Shugart where he was talking about um, Eve, which is like this massive online role playing game where they have all these like distributed you know folks out there who like team up and actually work together um, in these types of environments. I was just like, that would make so much sense in a military context if you could actually take our real capabilities, digitize that, and then have these operators like really learn because like, it's all about the training. A lot of it seems to be like that, you know, it's hard to get a real decisive technological advantage. And a lot of it actually just seems to come down to, you know, how, how well are people trained and how do they actually coordinate with each other? And if we can start the coordination process earlier um, through that kind of metaverse, then, you know, I'm all for it. Yeah, we've had, uh, so the Air Force has had a couple of uh, virtual environments that to do this kind of uh, distributed training, um, but it's, I mean, it's, it sucks. So it sucks for a few reasons. Uh, number one, uh, not all Air Force platforms can connect to it which is like automatically like a, a strike against integration. And then the, uh, the classification level doesn't let a lot of things connect that need to connect to actually do the, uh, the, the, real, the real stuff the, to get after. Um, and then the other part of it is it, it's not a physics-based environment. And so whatever, it's like, it basically is an online game. Uh, so it's whatever the game developer wrote, that's what it does. <laughs> so. Uh, it does definitely breed some uh, negative training and it's all, you know, it's all like, you know, desktop computers and servers. It's not actually software in the loop hardware. It's not the actual stuff from the aircraft. And so you don't actually get to see how it works. And because of that, and it's done under different contracts, the SIM versus the airplanes, uh, we have a problem what's called uh, concurrency, which means the, the aircraft software updates before the simulator updates. And so sometimes those two things are, you know, six months out of sync, sometimes they're three years out of sync. Um, and then even if you fix all that, uh, you still have a problem with latency. And so when you get to things like, uh, like multi-platform fusion, uh, for the fusion to work, it, you know, it's just physics. They, those two entities can't be 3,000 miles apart and execute fusion. It just, it doesn't work. Uh, it just, it doesn't work. That's not how the algorithms are designed. They're designed that you're probably within, you know, 100 miles or less, not 3,000 miles. So all these problems uh, require an entirely new enterprise. Like I said, it doesn't exist. There's people who have ideas. There's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of research papers. There's a lot of initiatives. They're all federated. And, and no one's, uh, there's not really a good uh, plan for, there's people talking about making a plan. Uh, but, you know, a plan and then you have standards, you meet the standards and, and put money against that problem. Uh, I don't I don't see this being fixed anytime soon. <laughs> there is a Afworks is working on like a digital game prime or something like that. You know, they have the, the EV toll prime agility prime and they're saying they're trying to stand one up for kind of creating basically what you're talking about here. Um, of course, the prime efforts are not really funded. They just kind of use DOD provide DOD assets to folks that just want to do the development on their own for, for different reasons. So not really yeah. sure what's the, the commercial use case 
for that kind of like military integrated environment versus like an EV till I can see the commercial use case. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't know enough about that. That's interesting. I've uh, got to I've got to look into that. I do think, okay. like, I, I don't disagree with you because that year uh, I, I sat in some of those simulator meetings because there was a there was actually a, a colonel who was put in charge of making all the simulators work, and I never envied his job at all because he was constantly in the building just getting beat upon. Um, but I, I do think these are solvable problems. I, I think I think we're I think the institutional issues that we've all talked about, <laughs> you know, budget, like getting the budget, um, you know, flexibility to be able to go do what we need to do and, um, you know, be able to award contracts that, you know, don't always have all the connection to the prime. So you have to make it so federated and coming up with a better architecture to kind of integrate. I mean, I do think there are technical things we can do. They're not easy, but, you know, it, it requires well and yeah, I hope somebody has the will to make make this uh, try to try to make the metaverse work. Maybe, maybe hire uh, hire Zuckerberg. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Meta World Peace or Meta Meta World Military. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right, let's uh, let's switch gears and talk about Sivir for a little bit. Uh, so one of uh, Heidi Shoes. Uh, uh, remind me what her job title is right now. <laughs> Undersecretary uh, of Defense for Research and Engineering. Or Research. chief technology officer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, chief tech, yeah. The, that job title switches every about three years. So, uh, all right. So, one of her uh, top priorities is uh, to engage Congress this next session to help create a real Phase Three Cyber Tranche. And so, Cyber Small Business Innovation Research. Uh, so, this would be aimed at uh, basically taking those Phase Two Cybers that have built prototypes or done the research to build a prototype and uh, actually have a SBA-backed, funded uh, phase three. And so for people that don't uh, realize, there is technically a phase three that exists, but it's uh, it's not funded. So the service has to fund it. So it basically has to make its own bridge into a programmer record. And so this would be making a real phase three that is SBA-backed uh, to create that, uh, that close-it disconnect between the current phase two and the current phase three. So the current phase three would basically become something else and go away. And then this new phase three uh, would take its place. Thoughts? I don't know. I guess I would just say that the, to me, the cyber phase three is really, um, it's almost like a, it's almost like a ticket, right? Like it's almost like you got, um, it's, it's more of a, more of a philosophy than it is a actual like contract because it's really the, um, it's really the fact that the, the program office doesn't have to do a competition uh, they can actually just go because they went through the server process. They can just go to that vendor and say, yep, looks like what you did as part of server one and two or uh, whatever um, is good. We're going to, we're going to pull you in um, and use that for, for this thing. So I, I do feel like it's less of the funding piece. I think it is partly the funding piece, but it's, it's also that programs are not, this kind of goes, I think, to the classic Valley Death thing. The programs are just not positioning themselves either to pull in a, uh, a commercial product or they're scared of doing it. They know about it, but they're they're scared of pulling in a vendor that's not familiar with DoD, hasn't done a lot of work with them, the risk of, um, of getting them integrated, and maybe also the contract requirements. They know that, you know, to pull this in, it's going to cost X amount of dollars, and that's going to drive these contractors to get a cost accounting systems and all the other stuff that 
uh, you get you get stuck with. Now you can with OT you can do you can do more with that, so you don't have to you can relieve that. But I do think um, I do think people know about it. I think Mike, it's just it's just fundamentally there's so many barriers to programs doing using it, and we just need DoD needs to. And I hope Heidi Shu does it needs to kind of lower some of those barriers. I don't think it's just funding though. Yeah, I know you're right. I, I agree. So in the in the the stats that I've seen, um, your your phase one is uh, basically market exploration for server. Phase two is you know kind of proof of concept, build a prototype, and the amount of uh, the amount of things that tra- that continue past a phase two and actually end up as a uh, as a programmer record is like four percent. It's it's ridiculous. And of those. Uh, as a, a source, I found um, I think it was National Defense Industry had a, had an article out that of those products that come out of a phase a DoD funded phase two server, uh, only about twenty three percent of them actually end up with military use. So there's so you know the big takeaway from that is well twenty three percent of sales were to the military. Sales, yeah, were to the military out of the DoD funded phase two. Uh, I'm not saying it's a, that's just an observation. It's not good or bad. It's discuss that. But it's, it's yeah. interesting though, right? Because when you think about a company entering this process, you get like a P win of maybe one in five, like 20% to get that phase one, which is just 50 grand, right? Uh-huh. And then it's like maybe a similar P win, like another one in five um, to get to the phase two. And, and now you're saying like of those that actually made it to the phase two and have like done something, you know, very few of them actually get to a, a program of record and get transitioned and get any money at all. And you can see why entrepreneurs would be pretty, I don't know, distraught with that kind of process. Yeah, I'd say that if, if anyone, uh, entre- entrepreneur is looking at doing a, a startup and using a SIPR process uh, as their sole mechanism, they're insane. Uh, they should have, they should have a, either a, a commercial product uh, with revenue or something that to stabilize a company or another product line under uh, government contracts before trying to go down this route. Uh, because yeah, you can, it's a, uh, it's non-dilutive capital as they say. So it's funds matching um, through uh, phase two and, and really in some of the strap five tech five stuff that the air force does, that's a pilot program though. Uh, but yeah, it's, if you're trying to build a business off of this, it's it's not going to work. And even that, even if you made it through all that, the transition from even phase two to Stratify uh, financing, or from Stratify to programmer record, it, your your company would go bankrupt just waiting. Yeah, that's what always got me was the delay. If you're a small business and you're just like you're trying to get enough money to pay your bills, your monthly bills. I thought that podcast you did, I, I forget the gentleman's name, but pretty recently, Eric, you did where he was basically like. Yeah. Like if I can't, I can't, I couldn't have wait, I couldn't have waited that long. My team would have just been like sitting there doing nothing, waiting for, waiting for them to, you know, waiting for the funding to come through. And I would, wouldn't have been able to make my, make my, uh, pay my bills on time. So that seems to me to be the biggest hurdle. And like, if one thing comes out of this whole Raider fund, I think, uh, which is this new modernization fund that's that Heidi Shu is actually probably going to have almost complete control of, um, given that she's running the innovation board at the depth sector. But if any, if one thing could come out of that bridge fund is I think that is that recognizing that delay between when a, a company is completing its phase two 
monitoring its success and saying, yeah, this is something that we, we want. And then immediately kind of throwing that, that Raider fund on to get them, you know, using the sole source from the phase three, get them on contract and roll them into another, you know, more advanced prototyping effort or whatever it is. Um, I, ho I hope they use it in that way because yeah, no, dead on. I want to make a, I make a slight jump um, to a, a tangent topic that's related to this venture capital. So if you look at the amount of companies that have uh, SPACed and gone public, uh, so they've IPO'd in the stock market, uh, the interesting is all these startups that have, you know, they were, you know, they start up and they go through private funding rounds and different, you know, series A, series B, series C, and they're VC backed. And so they're, you know, they're given, you know, rocket fuel to accelerate their company's growth so they can scale. Um, when you look at the, the fund structure of a venture capital fund, it's usually a 10 year cycle fund. And so you have to, you have about eight years to basically take a concept, uh, make it a billion dollar unicorn and cash it out. And so this year, uh, there's, there's a point to this, trust me. So this year we've had a, we've had a ton of SPACs the past like year and a half or so, um, which is a, a different kind of way to take a, a, a company public. The point is all of these companies that have been growing like crazy and you hear about, they're all, they're all privately held uh, under a, you know, a VC or a cap table. And when they go public, they're required to disclose their, their, their financials. And what you see is all of these companies that are going public over the past year and a half that you've all heard of, none of them have made any money. They've been a loss leader the whole time. And so it's funny to me that- It's also the point of a SPAC, right? You uh, wouldn't yeah. need a SPAC if you were, if you were in yeah. deep tech pre-revenue stuff. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> you say that, but like Allbirds, right? Allbirds <laughs> going public and, and just actually, they've never made a penny. And even though you know, they say they've been profitable since like day one, you know, that's a shoe, right? <laughs> like that's not really deep tech. So a lot of these things, it's interesting. And now we, we go back to, uh, you know, the, the zipper thing and people are like, oh, you know, it's two and a half years to get a program of record. Like, oh, like, well, if you had a revolving fund structured VC, that would be no big deal because it would be set up to accommodate that, you know, in, in Silicon Valley with these venture capitals, you know, these companies lose money for six years in a row, seven years in a row, and they're just trying to you know, cash out at the end to close their fund back to the investors. So a, a revolving fund would kind of break the paradigm of that timeline, but it would also let you have revenue to keep funding these companies to get to where they need to go, you know, public, quote public into a program of record uh, to get a contract. So anyways, my little uh, corollary to, uh, to VC backing and, and servers, it's, it's interesting, the more I learn about the two universes there, you know, the woe is me on one side doesn't necessarily match up with the woe is me on the other. <laughs> well, the, DOD definitely needs to be able to do business with venture back companies. Um, and often that can be like a, a non-starter. Yeah, so no, 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 that's good. Keep going. <laughs> well, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, so there's only a handful of uh, VC backed defense companies uh, there's actually two of them that I, that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, I'll just give one because everyone has probably heard of Andril. So Andril is uh, it's VC backed. And it's interesting when you look at the, the, the profit model of a VC backed company, whether it's defense related or not, a defense company does not meet the model for venture capital. It, it just doesn't meet it. 
Uh, and that kind of goes to the way that how contracts are structured and your profit margins and things like that when you do cost accounting. And you guys are way smarter than me on that. But, you know, would, would the government accept, you know, this company getting a 500% return on investment? You go, well, no, I think about 15% is about right. <laughs> so Andrew is, is interesting because they're, they're, they're pursuing revenue through a different um, revenue strategy. And so they have capability as a service with their uh, their base defense. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see them try to navigate that. They're like, how do we get the returns that a VC needs uh, that meets their investment criteria while still being in this defense paradigm, which is you know, ten to fifteen percent kind of profit margins. Yeah, that's a really good point. And there's just a restructuring of how the sources of value are happening in the economy, right? Like the way digital products are developed and then sold is just very different than sending raw material down an assembly line with like routine touch labor, right? And, and so a, a defense executive I just heard said today, um, in the commercial sector, you get 30 or 40% profits and then your um, R&D expenditures are 20 or 30%, right? So you, you have higher margins, but you also have like higher... Um, independent research and development costs, sales and marketing costs, um, enterprise tooling costs, this type of stuff. Uh, but like in the Department of Defense, we say you get 8% profit. And so what, what does that mean for those companies? I can only afford to put maybe one or 2% of my profit into independent research and development. So I kind of follow the government requirement as opposed to an Endural or these other venture-backed companies. And I think the way that they're looking at it is not like we will be a defense contractor selling butts and seats and labor hours. We are going to um, ultimately have those margins and build in the R&D to the price and, and sell it as a service and, and be more modern in that way. And so we won't look the same. Now, the question is, can DOD recognize the value and the price of that? And are they willing to kind of pay it without saying like, oh, I, I'm going to pay you 8% profit? Oh, that's a that's a great point. So if you if anyone's listening and you go back and listen to the past uh, five minutes or so that we were just talking about and then go read or reread uh, Chris Bros's Kill Chain, I think you'll you'll see the underlying tone uh, will be pretty clear. So if you've uh, if you read it and you haven't thought of all the, the profit structure models that we talked about and value, uh, when you read it again, you'll see all the hints that are in there about uh, and he works for Andrew. So go figure. But yeah, great book. Highly recommend reading it, but uh, read it with that lens and that you might come away with a different uh, take on it. Let's wrap up with uh, some fighter inventory uh, discussions. Only because you wanted to. Not because right. of you, right? Well, <laughs> no. I, I bring your great knowledge onto this podcast. I got to like uh, squeeze the squeeze the juice out of it. All right. All right. All right. Last topic. And then we'll, uh, then we'll call it, uh, call it good. So, uh, the alternate fighter plan, which was the, uh, a plan, uh, counter to the air force's recent four plus one, uh, fighter roadmap for the future. This alternate fighter plan was, uh, from AFA's Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And it basically called for, uh, cut the F-15EX, extend the F-22, buy a brand new clean sheet design, uh, low cost stealth uh, fighter, and then uh, accelerate production on F-35s. That's the big, the big takeaway. Um, and the rationale was, uh, it's the same, uh, it, you know, the Air Force, <laughs> it hasn't changed. 
uh, the, we were too small, too old, and uh, we need to accelerate change or lose. That's the big, uh, the big takeaway. Uh, I've, uh, I didn't read the study. I have my own opinions that differ uh, uh, greatly from the study, but there are some really good points in the study. So I, I don't wanna say it's, uh, you know, there's definitely things that I, uh, there, where there's alignment and I definitely understand where they're going and I don't agree. And there's some things that I absolutely do agree with what they're saying. Uh, and then there's some where just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's opposite, completely opposite. Couldn't get further apart. Uh, so, uh, which one do you want to talk about first? Well, you know, I'm just interested here. I guess it's kind of like the high low mix and it seems like they were saying like, well, the complaint that they always say they, they open up their podcast. They're like, their force is the, you know, the oldest and the smallest it's ever been. And it's like, well, if you say stealth is basically all we're going to have it, I don't, even under the rosiest of circumstances with the F-35, I don't see how you could ever grow. Right. Um, it just seems like, I don't know, there's this kind of, what does, what is high low mix? Like, I feel like we need a, like a straight up, like philosophical debate on what that means, but. Yeah. And it's funny if you, I think if you actually did the math all the way out and you said, uh, you know, the F-22 program got cut. Everyone knows that, uh, that in Air Force circles, it's scar tissue that uh, comes up time and time again. The B-2 program stealth also got cut. Been brought up many times if you're part of the Air Force time and time again. So there's definitely scar tissue about program preservation when like, you know, we went all this work and we finally got the thing working and then you killed the program. And that's why we have this problem. Like, well, maybe, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily blame the contractors for, for some of these problems. I think the program structure and the program uh, specifications drove a lot of the problems that we have that created the problems that then became politicized and then that's where momentum shifts and depending on, you know, who's in charge and that election year and all those other things, uh, you know, those are one-way decisions that are made like, Hey, we're going to curtail the F-22 program. And then those have second order effects. Uh, so F-22, I'll just pick on that for a little bit. It was about a 700 ish by original. That was the quote requirement. Uh, then the requirement, it got adjusted like three times actually. And it decremented, decremented, decremented. And they finally drew the line and said, no, no, no. The real, 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 real requirement is you know, 381 aircraft. Anything less than that's unacceptable. And then it got cut down to uh, ultimately about 187, 189 uh, F-22s. Well, those F-22s, the quote requirement was a one-for-one -one replacement for the F-15C. And so the F-15C, which should not even be flying today, was basically left in service and they were extended in tranches. And every time the F-22 program got curtailed, an equal amount of F-15s were set aside and extended. And so you have basically different tranches of F-15Cs flying around today based on when the F-22 program was curtailed. And so they have Golden Eagles, which are you know 100, 100 or so aircraft, which are the, the ones that they kind of put all the mods in to extend them the, the longest. And then you have the different variations of upgrades and things to kind of limp them along. And so the F-22 program actually created the F-15 problem we have now. <laughs> and the, the, and that, that started changing some other things. So the F-35 was never, there was no requirement ever that the F-35 replace the F-15. Uh, it was supposed to replace the A-10, the F-16 and the F-117 on a, guess what? one for one replacement. So if you added up every single aircraft of those three types, that's how many F-35s, that's what drove the 1,763 F-35 requirement. 
which when you look at it, you go, ah, no one checked your homework, <laughs> right? It's like, how do you even like, how do you call that a requirement? It's just like, well, that's just what we had. And so here's the same number, like great, yeah, great so requirement. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I question your math. And so uh, it's funny. Cause if you take that and you talk about like the B21 program, you go, how many B21s are you going to buy? Like you, you will not get a straight answer. You go, well, it's 80. Like, oh, it's, it's exactly 80. Like, no, 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 it's at least 80. And then it went to hundred. No, it's like 200, bro. Now it's up to 180 and, you know, 240 or 220 from some of the think tanks, but it's, it's a moving target. And it's a, it's a strategy because you do not want to get boxed in like we did with F35. They go, what's the exact number? And, and anytime you stick to something with a number and you have analysis that has a number, uh, you can do some really good analytics and change the assumptions and change the number. And so, you know, they're, the one for one thing was, uh, was, was I think, a, a pitfall, but I mean, it, it gave a structure to a program so you can have an idea of scale, uh, but also locked you into like a 50 year program buy, which I think is uh, kind of insane for any weapons program that you think 50 years from now, it's going to be the same. Um, so, well, anyways, that's, so that's F-35. And when you look at F-15, like I said, it was never in a requirement that F-35 replaced F-15, but that's kind of what ha was happening now just based on force structure. So um, in England and Lakenheath, uh, F-35s are going to go replace the F-15Cs. Uh, that's going to happen at, uh, well, it happened, it's happened in a few more places. Uh, some of those basing decisions, I don't think have been public yet, but it's basically happening, Air National Guard mostly, uh, where their older F-15Cs are either going to be replaced with F-35 or F-15EX, which is kind of the other part of the, the study. And so I don't, I wouldn't say there was much um, uh, informed analysis in the study. Uh, if you actually look at the section on F-15EX, and you count the uh, the paragraphs and the words. Uh, over a third of the section was basically on the on the political backstory of it, the F-15EX, not about its capabilities, which is really a, very telling uh, to me reading that as a uh, as a person who operates the F-15EX. <laughs> so. Yeah, I would have liked you know like maybe a little analysis of like what is it that the F-15EX can do that the um, f-35 or f-22 can't do and, and vice versa and show me like kind of like that overlap is like if you're saying that i can just replace it right like one for one replace then like i want to know like what does what does that actually mean on the ground right or i guess in the air in this case yeah so i would say that uh again the original requirement that everyone had signed off to was the f-35 is going to replace the a-10 and look how that has played out because it's very easy to go, here's the capabilities of an A-10, here's the capabilities of an F-35, here's where the attributes are differ, here's how they can maybe do the same mission in a different way. And, you know, people are focused on the process, not the effect and the end game. And so it's easy to get caught up in, in that debate. Now, but, that, take... but that was also speculative, right? You can just put those things out right now and do like a straight up, you know, operational evaluation. Yeah, so we're... So where it gets tough, again, this is all playing out in uh, in the media and in think tanks who actually don't know anything about these programs. Like me. Right? <laughs> well, I'd say they, they know they know what they read in the press, right? So exactly. There's, there's a little bit of a circular logic there. But I'd say like you couldn't have <laughs> you couldn't have a public, um, you know, comparison, a true comparison between the uh, capabilities and vulnerabilities of, of you know, high end aircraft. So. 
It, but are they, we assume have. that these are happening behind closed doors. The question is, are, are they? No, <laughs> I, I'll say, I'll say, because I mean, nobody, nobody ever, my three years on the program, and we had, we would bring in all the operators that were reps from all the different, you know, communities. And we would have the, you know, have them prioritize the things that we were doing for the next, next block. And, and I'm telling you, nobody, nobody in that room had a 10 in their head when we were talking about the capabilities, it was all about, they were looking at the threats, right? They were looking at the things coming down the pipe, the things that, you know, the, the deficiencies and the current platforms. And, uh, you know, it was, it was all about that. So I think, I think this whole like replacement thing died with, <laughs> with the, uh, the, the first acquisition strategy, you know, back in 1999. Uh, I don't think anybody ever thought about the A10 again after that, other than Congress telling us that, or GAO telling us that the uh, 35 is not a good, close uh, air support uh, uh, aircraft. But one, one, um, one thing though, I think that's, that's kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of important is just like the, this idea that we have to have, you know, a certain number of aircraft. I mean, it's like, there's this, it seems like it never ended this capacity versus uh, capability kind of uh, construct. And Congress, I think, still has, if I'm not mistaken, I think they still have 2,500 combat-coded aircraft um, as a requirement for, for, the, for DOD. So, so that, but there's this idea of the certain numbers and how you can meet those numbers. So I think like, I think that's ultimately what makes a lot of these decisions is that, you know, the impression that we have to have a certain number, the Guard has to have a certain number, the Air Force has to have a certain number, and then uh, you know, then all of a sudden we wind up with this, this, you know, this construct that, that I think was laid out here because, you know, you can only get so much of each one, but anyway, I think the F-16 one is going to be the most interesting conversation because so many countries are buying them now. We could actually get back in that business if we wanted to. So, yeah, the, uh, the F-16, there's definitely a lot of things you can do with it. Um, there's a lot of things we're not doing with it that we could. Uh, so I, I, there are parts of this, like I said, there's parts of the study I absolutely agree with. There's parts of the study that they weren't a little bit more digging, and then there's parts of the study I just disagree with. Uh, but I think we all agree that we maybe the Joint Program Office needs to to go away, and that's that was one of the recommendations in there. And uh, if you just look at the math real quick, you know, there's more people at the Joint Program Office to manage the F-35 than there is on the entire Air Force Air Staff in the Pentagon. So that's uh, you know 3, managing a service versus managing a program. It's uh, there's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the the back to the Viper though the the F sixteen you know the your your block seventies block seventy twos and you know one of the things that these are going to come down to you know, do we buy new F 16s or just keep the ones we have you know we those new aircraft have uh, you know vendor locked software so the F sixteens we we have a good amount of them we own the software so we have we have an Air Force unit with airmen who actually write the OFP for the jets. And so it allows us to do some things that we could never do inside of a vendor cycle. Uh, there's a lot of agile software that we're doing and some, some interesting things that you'll, uh, maybe we'll, in another couple of months, we'll, uh, we'll show some more things that we can do with it. I'm the biggest fan of those software depots. I, yeah, those guys are incredible. Yeah. yeah, that's the, yeah. Those are the guys at Hill Air, Air Force Base? Yeah, yeah. The uh, software engineering group, the SWEG. Yeah, let's give, a, let's give them a, a shout of appreciation from from, <laughs> from internet land yeah so uh, so i think i think we've been going for about an hour or so and i think it's time to wrap up and uh we picked a, a topic near and dear to my heart to wrap up on so 
so I appreciate that. Uh, Eric, I'm going to give the, uh, the podcast back to you to, uh, to wrap it up for us. Well, that's all we got time for this week, right? Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Matt. And we'll talk to you next time. All right. See ya. See ya. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.